0: Speak the charm of me. me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten,
1: when wizards will will rule the world.
0: This is the Arnomancy podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, and his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Arnomancy. You are listening to Part 8 of this podcast's extended exploration of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy, I am Reverend Derek, your host and guide on this esoteric journey. If you would like to catch up on the series, you can find all the episodes on the podcast's website at arnemanti.com/agrippa. The previous episodes of this podcast dealt primarily with material from books 1 and 2 of occult philosophy, and now it's finally time to dive into book 3, The Divine World. Specifically, we will be discussing the Kabbalah of occult philosophy and Agrippa's place in the birth and propagation of Christian Kabbalah. If you would like to do some reading before listening to this episode, I think you can get a pretty good overview of Agrippa's take on this topic by reading Book 3, Chapters 10 through 25. However, note that references to Kabbalah the Hebrew language and alphabet, and Jewish mysticism do crop up throughout Book 3. So what is Kabbalah? You can't really deny that Kabbalah is one of the cornerstones of Western occultism. It crops up everywhere from Solomonic magic to tarot to the Golden Dawn. If you've looked into it at all, you've probably come across the concept that Kabbalah is usually split into three main branches— differentiated in the way that they are transliterated into English. Christian Kabbalah, spelled with a C, is our main topic in this episode. Hermetic Kabbalah, spelled with a Q, is the variety used by modern ceremonial magicians. And then Jewish Kabbalah, spelled with a K, is the original strain of Jewish mysticism that the others pull from. The Christian Kabbalah of occult philosophy primarily pulled from a few different sources. First, the works of Johann Reuchlin, and second, Francesco Giorgi's book De Harmonia Mundi. When I first realized that I couldn't talk about occult philosophy without diving into Christian Kabbalah, I panicked a little bit. This is a hairy topic, and I knew I'd have to rely on an expert to really give this episode the detail that it needs. To find this expertise, I turned to a name you're probably all familiar with, Dr. Justin Sledge. Dr. Sledge is the host of Esoterica, a YouTube channel that explores topics in Western esotericism such as magic, mysticism, alchemy, Kabbalah, hermetic philosophy, theosophy, and more. Dr. Sledge has received a DRS in Western Esotericism and Related Currents from the University of Amsterdam and an MA and PhD in Philosophy at the University of Memphis. And now I will let Dr. Sledge introduce this period of Kabbalistic history.
1: Kabbalah, in many ways, is the Wild wild West. It's the weeds of Western Esotericism in many ways. And this time period is the weeds of that, time, of that topic. So the period after the composition of the Zohar, sometime twelve seventies, twelve eighties, and the time up till Cordovero and Safedian Kabbalah, that couple hundred years is very difficult to pin down in terms of what's going on there. And even I think Moshe Adel says in one of his uh, books that the Christian Kabbalah is an enigma, the the origins of it are an enigma. We still don't have a real clear sense of where it begins exactly, and it has a lot to do with how you define what Kabbalah is, and it has a lot to do with um, the generation in which um, Kabbalistic literature jumped from a purely Jewish world into the Christian world. That whole jump is still poorly understood. So um, a, a lot of what I'll say today is pretty provisional, and the period before that, from about 1280 to the 1470s, 1480s. Um that time period um is the most enigmatic time period in the history of Kabbalah, so much so that I just i did a last spring or last um no last fall I did a fourteen hour long history of Kabbalah, and that time period got two or three sentences not because um that's how much it deserves it obviously deserves much more than that, but because that time period is one of the most difficult time periods to sort out just what's happening and the, we know that a ton got written, but virtually none of it's translated, and most of it, I would say 80% of it, is still in
0: manuscript. There is a pervasive and really easy-to-believe myth in the Western occult community regarding the origins of Christian Kabbalah. This myth explains that it was the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492 that caused Kabbalah to spread across Europe. However, just a cursory examination of the timeline of the development of Christian Kabbalah shows that this can't be exactly true. Aside from Agrippa, there are a couple of other important early Christian Kabbalists whom we'll discuss in this episode. The earliest of these is Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, who lived from 1463 to 1494. You've heard Pico's name plenty of times on this podcast, but the significant thing to understand about the haze that hovers over this part of the history of Kabbalah is that Pico was well-versed in Kabbalah years before 1492. However, as Dr. Sledge explains...
1: To get back, yeah, yeah, Pico is sort of the guy, right? Um, Pico is the... He's the entryway for Kabbalah into, into... what would become Western esotericism, modern Western esotericism, modern occultism? Um, but I think that it's what's worth doing is thinking a little bit about what it is that he's, what it is that's being transferred, right? Because it's not like Kabbalah is one thing at this time, and it's not like what's getting transferred is homogeneous by any stretch of the imagination. Um, So one of the things I guess might be worth pointing out is kind of talking about a couple of the works that were written between the Zohar and this time period that are going to be really, really important in this story. Um, And one of those is that the Zohar isn't finished by the 1270s and 1280s. There are entire sections of the Zohar written after that. Um, The Raya Mahimna, the faithful shepherd, uh, which was overwhelmingly probably one of the most popular sections of the Zohar that section was written slightly later than the main body of the Zohar um unfortunately that section is not translated in the new Pritzker um but Zohar by Daniel Matt Uh, in fact I asked Daniel Matt uh, a couple years ago studying with him I was like any plans to do the faithful shepherd the Raya Mahimna and he's like I've done enough I've done enough um and I couldn't argue with him uh, and then also on top of that, there's another section called the uh, Tikkunei Zohar, um, the reparations of the Zohar, and that was no doubt the most popular section of the Zohar. That section was the most widely read. So, one of the f- funny, and, and it's most widely read because the Tikune Zohar is, um, in many ways, an early attempt to systematize some of the previous stuff in the actual main body of the Zohar. And for folks who are out there who've ever read Zohar, or, for us, I mean, we've, we know how, um, how much of a mess that document is. Um, some books get at pages and pages and pages and pages of the commentary on one line, and then some books get three pages. And then some three pages are some of the most enigmatic sections in the entire thing, like the Sifra Ditsunyuta. So the Zohar is a highly uneven book in lots of ways. Um, and the, the Tikkunay Zohar um, is an attempt, an early attempt, within the Zohar itself to begin systematizing itself. So even in the decades that follow the composition of the main body, of the Zohar, the Zohar is still growing. There's still what we would call the Zoharic corpus, and that Zoharic corpus continues to grow. So that's the first thing. The second thing that happens is there was, there was a, what I would call uh, Zohar-adjacent literature that's being composed as well. The most famous of the Zohar-adjacent literature is, um, joseph gigatia's uh, or Gikatila, uh his uh shaari ora the gates of light that is without any doubt the most famous text being produced that i would call para zoharic para zoharic because Gikatila is writing at the same time the zohar is being edited into what we now know of it now he knew moshe de leon so those guys are running in the same circles so it's not just like he's writing separate than the Zohar writers, he knows those guys. And so he's, you can think of him sort of orbiting in a broader orbit, the Zohar literature. And he's also been influenced by Abraham Abulafia. He, he started his career as an Abulafian and then converted over to the, theoth- the Theosophical Kabbalah. So Gicotil is writing that, and that book's going to become important in just a little bit because it's going to be translated by Rhesius In the uh, 16th century, and it's going to be the first major text of Kabbalah. One of the early major texts of Kabbalah to be translated. In fact, I'm I'm sure everyone's seen the famous woodcut of the guy, the Jewish guy holding the Tree of Life. Um, It's all over the internet. So that's an example of para zoharic literature that's being being developed. And Gikatilla or Gikatilla is somebody who knows some Abulafia, but also is really coming into the fold of Moshe de Leon and really becoming influenced by that. Next layer out, right? Next layer of the onion. <laughs> um, next layer of the the layer of the onion is that this is also the time period where Menachem Rekanati is going to write the most important commentary on the Torah uh, of that time period, and this will be the first time. And he's in the he's in the world of Nachmanides. Uh, Menachem Reconati is going to basically write the definitive kabbalistic interpretation of the Torah. He's going to take ideas from the Zohar, distill them down, and then write a commentary on the on the the Torah that's going for the first time to make Kabbalistic ideas um, much more accessible to a wider audience. He's also Italian and so there are we can already begin to see the shift things are beginning to move um, so first published uh, in fifteen twenty three which is pretty early all things told but um, there's some question about when it was written but uh, 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 Reconati was from 1223 to 1290. So again, we're talking about really close to the bone in terms of the composition of the Zohar. The Zohar is still not completely edited together by 1290. So already it's generating this first wave of, um, of commentaries. It's going to be important because it's going to be, that commentary is going to be the one translated by Mithra, Mithra, Mithraides into Latin, and this is going to be one of the principal texts that Pico is going to get.
0: If the timeline feels a little weird here, uh, look at it this way. Pico had a manuscript version of this text and the print version wasn't printed until 1527 in Venice.
1: And so the other big text that's going to matter here that's worth pointing out um, is a text called Ma'arechet Ha'Elohot. This text is the first attempt in this time period to, systematic, to systematize Kabbalah. And what we have um, in these texts, um, which is just beginning to boil us down, these two texts, and there are many other ones, right? There are many other ones. What these texts represent are the first attempts in the Kabbalistic literature by Kabbalists to systematize Kabbalah. We think that happens... Most people tend to think that happens much later with Cordovero. Cordovero is the first real systematizer, but that's not true. Even within the generation of the Zohar and the generation right after that, there's already attempts at systematizing it. And these two texts matter enormously uh, because one, they're just the most popular text of Kabbalah of this time period, this time period before Safedian Kabbalah, but after the composition of the Sefer Zohar.
0: I hate to interrupt Dr. Sledge again, I just want to make sure that it's clear that when he talks about Cordovero, Luria, and Sifedian Kabbalah, he's talking about a later movement of of Jewish Kabbalah that happened starting in the 1560s and 1570s, which was, you know, 30 years after Agrippa's death.
1: But the reason why this is important is because we have the lists, or at least some of the lists of the texts that were being transferred by people like Flavius Mithradides, and we have texts that are being recommended by people like uh, Elijah del Medigo, and those lists that survive tell us what kind of texts were making their way through the veil. That is to say, what texts were leaving the world of exclusively Jewish Kabbalah and then entering into the orbit of the Florentine um, Hermetic, Hermetic Court, right? Or Florentine Academy or Pico's World, Elmo's World, Pico's World, and what texts are going to end up in Latin and what's going to form the basic core of Christian Kabbalah. And by extension, at some level, what texts are going to eventually form the core of the Hermetic Kabbalah and Kabbalah as it enters into Christian occultism and eventually, of course, the ones that end up to Agrippa and
0: on and on and on. Dr. Sledge was kind enough to share with me a list of texts, mostly manuscripts, that Pico would have had access to and could have all been very, very, very important in the early formation of Christian Kabbalah. There is a link to this list in the show notes. It is an intimidating Google Doc with many titles, many of which are only in Hebrew, Um, And there are some interesting things about this list, which Dr. Sledge describes.
1: Some of these texts are going to end up in the list translated by Mithridates, but famously and conspicuously missing is going to be the Zohar. That is what's going to be conspicuously missing in almost all of Christian Kabbalah. And by extension, much of Sephirotic theosophy like, think about how many times you hear about the Sephirot in Agrippa. Reuchlin. Reuchlin, even sometimes in uh, De Arte Kabbalistica, sometimes even says they're angels. He, he's not even really clear what they are.
0: Yeah, I've been reading uh, De Arte Kabbalistica. Uh, uh, you know, for, for any modern uh, occultist who studies Kabbalah, it's but like Reuchlin stuff is just way different. It's not what you would expect.
1: It's not. And it's actually not. And Joseph Don makes this point it's really important to tease out that, the Kab- that what, Kabbal- what traditional Kabbalists are doing and what Christians interested in Kabbalah want are not the same thing. And therefore, what gets transferred, what, what, what I call what passes through the filter of the Pico filter, what passes through that Pico filter at some level was, was, is mostly influenced by the interest of that generation. And then ditto with Reuchlin, what passes through that filter and what it turns out they're primarily interested in is completely not what we would think of as Kabbalah these days. What they're primarily interested in is one, divine names. They're really interested in that. Obviously, Royce wrote a whole book about that. Right? So they're really interested in divine names, and they're really interested in hermeneutical tools by which scripture can be read by manipulating letters in scripture to reveal hidden things. And notice what we see. In Agrippa, D, Reuchlin to some degree, it's all the Notericon, Siruf, Gamatria stuff.
0: The, the, de, the kind of like delight they have in playing with letters is, oh, I was about to say astronomical, but it's actually more astrological. <laughs> I mean, it, but they, they love it. Like they, they love how the letters can be played with and moved around and recombined and stuff like It's oh, yeah. amazing.
1: And think about what we have in Agrippa. When Agrippa talks about Kabbalah, He's not talking about the Tree of Life. He's not talking about the Spherot. Not really. He's certainly not thinking about doing Jewish law as a part of his theurgical practice to unite with the Godhead. He's mostly talking about how to derive hidden names of angels and divine names from scripture and things like that. If you look at the third book,
0: uh, it's just those huge charts. So, open Agrippa, turn to book three, chapter 25.
1: And then you get just pages and pages and pages of Hebrew characters being manipulated. He doesn't care. He's not interested in the Tree of Life. He's not interested in... Uh, and this is also interesting, right? He's also not interested in trying to map correspondences onto the Tree of Life, which is going to be something that's going to be hugely important later for for the Hermetic Kabbalah. He's... He, him and Roichlin D, the, the Christian Kabbalah is much more interested in uh, biblical hermeneutics, which of course is, that's, I mean, Reuchlin is a humanist. That's kind of, obviously, that's their, that's their bag. Mm-hmm. And the secrets that can be derived from those hermeneutics, they're not that interested in the secrets that Jews have already discovered via the Zohar. Except, except when it comes to Trinity stuff, right? right. They, really, they really do like the idea that the, insofar as they do talk about the Svirot. They talk about them as one corporate Adam Kadmon, which is just Christ. I think you can probably count on one hand how many times Pico, Reuchlin, and Agrippa quote the Zohar.
0: So none of these early Christian Kabbalists were using the Zohar, which begs the question, what references was Agrippa using? We know Agrippa was uh, referring to Johann Reuchlin, but where was Reuchlin getting his Kabbalah? Almost
1: everything that he gets from the Kabbalah is coming from just basically one manuscript, which, folks, by the way, you can see that manuscript if you get lucky. It's in the JTS library in New York. It's, it's basically a Kabbalistic compendium that Reuchlin got or had put together. And if you want to know what's in it, uh, there's the list there that I sent you, Eric, on the
0: side. Dr. Sledge is, of course, referring to the uh, document filled with references in the show notes.
1: But what's, what's worth pointing out here, right, I think, and folks can do this on their own, and we can, we can talk about this more if you want, but if you were to take all the texts that were translated by Flavius Mithradides, right, for Pico, and then take almost the exact same list that uh, Royklin had access to, they're 85% the same books. Um, so De Arte comes out, and between De Verbo and De Arte, Rhesius publishes, who's a convert, OA, okay, a convert from Judaism, he publishes Porte Lucis. That is, in many ways, the first real contact Christians are going to get with the Sphirot. That's the main text, although it seems to have not made a serious impact in a lot of ways. And the you know the proof of that is how often do you see speculation about this the nature of the Sfirot aside from the idea that they're Adam Kadmon and things like that and they're they really Christ, and this is to, this is to Moshe Adel's point um, is that calling them Kabbalists is weird because clearly whatever Jewish Kabbalists were interested in is not what Christian Kabbalists were interested in, right? And so the question is what do we mean by Kabbalah? And Moshe Adel points this out and I think he's right is that we can think about Kabbalah in two distinct ways. We can think about um, the prophetic, theosophical Kabbalah represented by the Zohar and Abalafia, respectively, which are really phenomena that began in the, you know, the, the very end of the 12th century and the 13th century. But we can also think about this whole divine name speculation stuff that goes back in Jewish history much, much earlier um, and was called Kabbalah sometimes, right? There are some cases where it does get called Kabbalah, um, and that divine name speculation was also something Christians knew about and enjoyed. Uh, we can think about Avner Burgos or, uh, well, Joachim of Fior also is interested in that stuff. Of course, there's much more in Dan Otrell's House, but they're also interested in this whole um, divine names business, which obviously Reuchlin is clearly interested in that. That's basically the whole point of the first book he wrote, was to show how the tetragrammaton is really a pentagrammaton and. With the coming of Christ, we now enter the final age of history. Um, but it is the idea that that the divine name is changing over time. In the insertion of that Shin into uh, Yod Hey Shin Vav Hey gives us Yeshua, uh, and that represents the completion of the divine name. It's no longer the Tetragrammaton; it's the Pentagrammaton. So we have this divine this divine name stuff that Christians have already been interested in for several hundred years, and. I think in many ways that what ultimately gets imported into Pico's world, and we have the list of the things that he was, but most of the things that he was reading from uh play with Mithridates, you get a lot of Abelafia, Um, So that's a big thing you get. You get some stuff from Rabbi Azrael, and then you get um, some of the stuff from a Marechid um, ha- uh, Ha'elohut. So we get that stuff and we get some Gigatia, but, What's interesting there? You get the safer, you get the the safer by here, you get uh, uh commentary on um on the uh, on the on the Torah, and but no Zohar, Zohar is basically absent in that list, and there's a lot of debate about why is it absent, is it because uh, Pico didn't want it? Is it absent because Mithridates couldn't render it? He just couldn't read the Aramaic. Is it absent because he didn't want to render it? And he maybe didn't want to hand it over. Um, And ditto, when you look at Royklin's list, right? We do get some Zohar, a little bit, but not much. You get Safer Bahir, you get Safer Yetzirah, so we have the classic trilogy there. A lot of, uh, again, a good bit of Lafia, and some Castilian stuff, which is relatively obscure now, and some Kaste Ashkenaz stuff. But in that whole list... It's very little in the way of, of Zohar.
0: If Pico, Reuchlin, and Agrippa weren't interested in the Zohar, and they weren't interested in the Sephirotic part of uh, Kabbalah, then what exactly were they looking for? Justin Sledge explains a little bit about Pico's approach to Kabbalah.
1: If you, and again, if you look at the Kabbalistic conclusions, Pico's not that interested in Kabbalah for its own sake he's interested in Kabbalah as part of this much longer Latin polemical tradition in which the tools of the Jews can be used against them to show that they're wrong. And he's only really interested in mining these Jewish sources. And it's not just to show that Christianity is right, it's really just to show that his very particular kind of Christianity that he's developed um, and his theses is correct. And so the Kabbalistic conclusions are just meant to show not only am I right, but I'm right From Averroes and Aristotle and Plato, and uh, and Kabbalah. Um, So, also, what's motivating these guys is often very different. For instance, Pico is very motivated by basically using the Kabbalah to show that his particularly weird Christian version of Christianity is right. Roikland's motivation is even weirder in many ways. Like converting the Jews is old hat. That's of course they're going to try to convert the Jews. Roichlin's justification is that the Medici's should be so. Proud of being Italian because they lay claim to the Prisca Theologia as expressed by Pythagoras. Right, this crazy thing about Pythagoras that Pythagorean documents all went extinct, but because Pythagoras learned from the Jews, and in some cases, even they say he was a Jew, which is patently bizarre, that, that what Pythagoreanism is actually downstream of ancient Israelite Kabbalistic wisdom. And therefore, all the works of of Pythagoras had been lost, but they had been preserved, the original wisdom had been preserved in Kabbalah, and therefore the Italians could regain their proper Pythagorean roots by studying Kabbalah, which has to be the most mental gymnastics I've ever heard for justifying studying
0: the Kabbalah. Now, we spent a lot of time trying to put Agrippa in his historical context, and I think we've done a really good job, and Dr. Sledge has done an amazing job sort of leading us on that journey. But what about some of the other characters in this tale? Johann Reuchlund, for instance, had a story that was all his own, and we'll let Dr. Sledge talk a little bit about that.
1: Uh, and Reuchlund was having a terrible time. I mean, he was. He, I mean, he was, he, even though he was personal friends with the Pope or whatever, I mean, he was coming up against uh, Johann's peppercorn. And you know, that that was the two the two theories of what to do with the Jews, which again when you have a bunch of Germans talking about what to do with the Jews, it kind of makes us nervous. Reuchlin was like, we must we should learn from the Jews and we should live in harmony with them and learn from them and they would learn from us and maybe some of them will become Christians. Of course, Peppercorn was himself a converted Jew, and his position was the way we convert them is by depriving them of their books. It's their books that they're so attached to. That's how they defend themselves. And if we just burn all their books. And again, this is when, you know, peppercorns say burn all their books, that'll get, leave them defenseless, and then we'll it'll be easy to convert. That argument is going to be taken
0: up by Luther and on the Jews and their lives. It's going to be take, obviously taken up later. While I was working on this episode, Dan Attrell of the Modern Hermeticist actually released a whole video about the Reuchlin-Pfeffercorn affair, and I will have a link to that in the show notes just in case you want to learn more about this really disturbing time in history. And now finally, we're getting to, I think, uh, one of the most important questions that comes out of this Christian Kabbalah stuff, especially the Christian Kabbalah that went on to influence and help create what we know today as Hermetic Kabbalah. My big question is, given the strange antisemitic roots of so much of Christian Kabbalah and how that Christian Kabbalah is such a vital Core component of what became Hermetic Kabbalah. Should we cancel Christian Kabbalah? Should we cancel Hermetic Kabbalah and not be looking at this stuff at all and not be using it as modern practitioners?
1: I'm not on team cancellation, and the reason why is that could it have gone any differently? Right? It, it, it was. Was there a world in which, in which someone in the 15th century would have said, "Hey, you know what? Like, let's be tolerant of the Jews and." Let's learn from them and not do it in a way that's actually about persecuting them uh, or trying to convert them. There's no way of taking Christians out of the Latin polemical tradition. There's just no way of doing that. There's just, and I don't, I don't look to Reuchlin or Pico with any animosity because of the world that they were born into and the logics that they unconsciously accepted because everybody's born into a world with logics that they unconscious. I mean, our, This shirt I'm wearing is probably made by a kid in Thailand. I mean, so it's one of those things where, like, do I consider myself, like, a a person who's pro-slavery and sweatshops because I am stuck into a system where to buy a T-shirt from, I don't know, Hailung or whatever, like, I have to get it from a sweatshop in Thailand? Like, that's the world I live in, and at some level, I don't like it, and I bet you money Reuchlin didn't like the world he lived in, where he's, like, having to argue that we should burn Jewish books. I'm pretty, like, he's, like, good question. I mean, I'm sure he hated that. So the, the first thing is there's that. That's one thing that I, I just don't want to get into a situation where it's called the, you know, I think it's a, the genetic fallacy that because the origin is bad, everything that flows from it is bad. And even the origin of it being bad, I don't think it was bad. I think it's still redeemable in the sense that there's still a lot of spiritual and intellectual valuable stuff there that can inform us in a way that is good because we're not, Most of us aren't motivated by the Latin polemical tradition.
0: Okay, well, that's a relief. It sounds like I can stop giving the stink eye to all of my Golden Dawn friends with their Hermetic Kabbalah. But Dr. Sledge isn't done. We've got more to talk about with Christian Kabbalah.
1: Also, I think that what's really weird about Christian Kabbalah, and maybe it's the weirdest thing about Christian Kabbalah, is that I don't know of another. We think about the three Abrahamic traditions, right? Is there another example between Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, where one religion, Christianity in this case, went to a religion that they thought they had superseded theologically, i.e., Judaism, and said, "Oh, you guys have a lot of really super cool stuff that we want to help transform our religion with." That's, I mean, when Pico does that, and when Roy and these guys come along and say the Jews have secret wisdom that, despite the fact that they're, you know, they're blind and stiff-necked or whatever, but the idea that they would want to use spiritual technologies, we could say, from a persecuted minority as, as part of, you know, coming with renovating their own religion, it's really peculiar. I don't know of any cases where Jews went to Christian texts and said, we really got to translate Thomas Aquinas into Hebrew, because they got something there. I don't know that ever happened. And did it with Islamic texts. I don't know a single case where Muslim scholars thought, hey, you know what? Like, Pico della Mirandola, really got it right. Let's translate the theses into Arabic. And in that way, what I'd want to say about that, that yes, we have the Latin polemical tradition, but at the same time, we have some people, D, Reuchlin, Postel, Pico, who are willing to look at a tradition that had basically only been thought of as a mine by which to use stuff from that mine to destroy it, right? That's the Latin polemical tradition. But this is a situation where they say, not only can we use that mine to destroy or convert the Jews, but we need it as part of the restoration of our own religion. That's peculiar. At least it shows me is that attitudes about the Latin polemical tradition were softening and... Not only were they softening, but you have this, I mean, again, humanism, where everybody has something to contribute to the truth, and we need to all come to the table to sort out what that is. Now, of course, that early humanists all thought that it was Christianity still, but that, that crack, right? Again, we, we shouldn't expect the, the whole edifice to crumble, but I think that that's the crack that began the, mo- the movement, not only toward the escape velocity of the hegemony of Christianity, But also that began the escape velocity towards secularism, where we could also say, well, there's none of these people have access to the truth. And really what we need is we need uh, a sphere where the church can't affect us or bother us anymore.
0: Many thanks to Dr. Justin Sledge for giving us so much incredible information on the history, philosophy and influence of Christian Kabbalah. I believe this topic has given us a great deal to think about and has furthered our collective understanding of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's occult philosophy. In addition, I hope that this episode has sparked your interest in the history of Christian and Hermetic Kabbalah. Thanks also to you, dear listener. There has been a gap of a couple months since the last episode of this Occult Philosophy series brought about by a number of events in my non-podcasting life. I really, truly appreciate your patience as I find the time to finish up this series and get back on the podcasting horse. There is just one episode remaining in this podcast's exploration of Agrippa's occult philosophy. My Patreon supporters will, of course, be receiving that episode a week before the rest of the world, along with bonus materials such as full interviews, scripts, and show notes, and a glimpse at works in progress. If you've been enjoying these episodes and want to help their development, you can help out by sharing this podcast with a friend. Let your weird wizard buddies and witch pals know that we are on this journey and invite them to join us. And if you want to contribute monetarily, you can always go to Arnomancy.com slash support and find a number of options. Until next time, dear listeners, keep reading books, keep being weird, and keep doing magic. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnomancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash